Hello, and welcome to our sixth episode of Wildfire Matters, the podcast that covers all aspects of wildland fire management for the Bureau of Land Management, or BLM. We talk with the people who manage and protect our public lands, dedicating their lives to the profession. Jennifer, my co-host, had another commitment today, so she is unable to join us. So it'll just be me talking with Sean Peterson, Assistant Center Manager of the National Interagency Coordination Center, commonly known as NIC, at the National Interagency Fire Center. Welcome, Sean. Uh, Thanks for having me, Carrie. Yeah, it's great having you here. I know you have a very busy schedule, so (laughs) we're lucky to have you here as things are ramping up this season. Yeah. Sean has been the Assistant Center Manager since 2018, but has worked at the NIC in various capacities since 2009. He is originally from Susanville, California, and began his wildland fire career working as a seasonal firefighter with CAL FIRE before moving to Idaho to attend Boise State University in 1999. Go Broncos, my alma mater. (laughs) Sean began his federal career in 2000, around the time of the National Fire Plan, when many of us got our permanents and, and careers in fire, um, spent nine years in fire operations with the Forest Service and BLM, working pri- primarily on fire engines before transferring to the NIC. Okay, Sean, how did you get started in fire? I mean, why did you decide on wildland fire? Yeah, uh, so I'm actually a third generation firefighter. My grandfather started fight, fighting wildland fires uh, right after World War II. Uh, he worked a couple seasons with the Forest Service down in California and then switched over to then the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection. Uh, Had a long, illustrious career. My father followed in his footsteps. He worked for the BLM for a couple years as a station manager up in Fort Yukon, Alaska, but uh, spent the vast majority of his career working for CAL FIRE as well. So ever since I was a little kid, wildland fire was a thing in in my family. So uh, as my dad was a duty officer, I spent a lot of time in dispatch. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the Susanville Interagency Fire Center, probably from seven years old until I was time for myself to go try to start firefighting. So I started out uh, on the Shasta Trinity unit of uh, CAL FIRE, Uh, moved up here to Idaho, like you said, to go to Boise State University. Thought, man, Idaho has a lot better hunting than California does. I think I'm going to stick around up here. So uh, the rest is history. Uh, Spent a number of years with the federal government uh, working on fire engines on the Sawtooth National Forest, uh, Boise National Forest, and then uh, Bureau of Land Management down in Northern California before coming to the National Interagency Coordination Center. Okay, so it's definitely in your blood and actually <laughs> to be a, in a dispatched kind of situation as well. Yes, exactly. Like. I've got a picture of my grandfather in my office from uh, 1954 dispatching uh, in Tuolumne Calaveras unit for Cal Fire in San Andreas. So pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome to hear generations of firefighters and and you might have your own generation coming up. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You never know what kids want to do these days. Exactly. Um, so how did you get started at the coordination center? Yeah. So as a logistics coordinator for a number of years, I uh, worked primarily on the aircraft desk, uh, also the equipment and supply desk. I uh, had some really good mentors there. I moved to the Intel section back in uh, 2012 or so, and uh, spent a lot of time back in Intel as the intelligence officer, uh, and then the intelligence coordinator working on uh, primarily the SIT-209 application, which was redesigned in 2014. Uh, and then in 2018, I had an opportunity to get promoted as the uh, assistant center manager at NIC, and uh, love my job. That's great for being there for so long. And you guys are busy all the time. Yeah. And, well, we'll 
get into that in a little bit later, but um, yeah, we've uh, gone from fire seasons, as we've said in the past, to fire years, and it, it's just um, constant. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad to hear that you still love your job. Yep. <laughs> Encourage others. Yes. <laughs> so on a day-to-day basis, what um, in your current position as assistant manager, mm-hmm. um, what do you do? Like yeah. So, uh, Nick, just like uh, most of our 250 plus uh, local dispatch centers and our 10 geographic area coordination centers, uh, we're an interagency office. So uh, it does not matter what agency we work for. We work together as a team, whether it's uh, working for the federal land management agencies with the state um, or even working uh, with FEMA under um, their authorities, under their emergency support function that the Forest Service and BLM support. Uh, the NIC itself, it's an interagency office uh, made up primarily of personnel from BLM. Uh, we do have some Forest Service folks in there. And last year, we have our first Bureau of Indian Affairs employee. So I work in hand in hand with my counterpart, Derek Hartman. Uh, he's the assistant center manager on the Forest Service side of the house at NIC. And really, we're just one and the same. We speak for each other. We supervise the, the same staff. Uh, that includes our predictive services, our airspace coordination folks, and our floor coordination where a lot of our dispatch and coordination takes place. Uh, also oversee the day-to-day operations of the NIC floor, which is very busy, uh, especially during the Western fire season. But as you alluded to, it's, it's year-round at this point. Uh, I trade off also as the MAC group coordinator for the National Multi-Agency Coordinating Group with my counterpart. Um, and then we'll also sit on a number of chairs and committees, uh, primarily under NWCG, but also other task groups and those types of things for the fire management board and those folks as well. Okay, got your hands in a lot of different things there. Yes. So what, um, have, have you seen it change throughout the year? I mean, or do, do your duties change throughout the year? Yeah, I mean, they do change to some degree. Um, and, and I would, wouldn't even call it an off-season any longer. Um, it's more of a, a year-round fire season. Um, it just it, it, it ebbs, and, ebbs and flows primarily with the western fire season. So uh, obviously during, uh, you know, April, May, and through the rest of the rest of the summer, we are very busy. We are more into actual resource allocation decisions, um, making sure that we're getting resources to the geographic areas that need them the most, working closely with the National Multi-Agency Coordinating Group, um, and those types of things in the summertime. You know, uh, I think last year we went through 65,000 individual resource orders that were processed through the NIC. Um, but in the wintertime, we don't really have an off-season. So in the fall time and wintertime, that's when we get caught up on a lot of our administrative stuff. So uh, Nick um, is the single focal point, not only for the national mobilization of resources uh, to wildland fires and all risk incidents, but we have a close relationship and we have agreements with our international partners. So Canada, Mexico, New Zealand, as well as Australia, though it's the time of the year um, that we're working with them, formulating and updating our operating plans. Um, and then really looking back at the rest of the season that we just went through, through an AAR process, specifically with the National Multi-Agency Coordinating Group, trying to get better at some of the things that we do on a day-to-day basis. Um, so it's never really a slow time at NIC. Uh, especially when we're providing international support to Australia in the wintertime uh, or other types of support to FEMA, um, hurricanes, COVID, all kinds of different things. So. Right. It seems like every year there's something new that comes up. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And AAR, is that um, after action review, correct? Yes, yes. yes. And that's just basically going over what happened, what what we can do better maybe. Yeah, absolutely. So Nick does have a lot of moving parts. I know one is the national dispatching system. Can you kind of explain that? And then from there, go into the other parts of, of 
um, Nick. Sure. Um, so Nick is the focal point nationally for the mobilization of resources to wildland fires and all risk incidents. It's the top tier of the three tier national dispatch coordination system. Um, and there's a lot that goes into that. So uh, the dispatch coordination system uh, starts out at that local level. Uh, we have over 200 of those dispatch centers scattered throughout the United States. Uh, a perfect example would be, uh, let's say, and uh, just outside of Boise here, we get a, a, a wildland fire. Uh, 98, 99% of the time, they're going to suppress that fire. It's going to be you know, a less than an acre, more, more likely a tenth of a, or a quarter of an acre. But at 90, every 2% out of that 100%, the fire does go into extended attack. So that local dispatch center is going to always use a closest forces concept to dispatch resources to that incident, uh, regardless of agency. So whether it's the city of Boise or the BLM or the Forest Service or the Idaho Department of Lands, they're going to dispatch those resources, closest forces to that incident. If that fire does get into that 2% and does go extended, then they will create orders in an application system called the uh, Interagency Resource Ordering Capability, or IROC. They will create these orders in this online application, and then they will place that um, order, if they've exhausted all their resources locally, to the Geographic Area Coordination Center. And we have 10 of those uh, across the country. Uh, for Boise here, it's the Great Basin Coordination Center, how's that at Salt Lake? And they would create that order at Boise Dispatch, place that order to Salt Lake City, and then Salt Lake City would all, or the Great Basin Coordination Center would utilize the closest forces concept and utilize place that order with the next dispatch uh, center uh, closest to the incident. So for example, let's just say a, a fire engine. Um, so they would get Great Basin would receive that order, place that order to Shoshone, uh, where we have uh, South Central Interagency Dispatch Center. They will either fill that order uh, and the resource will start headed to the fire or they'll UTF it or unable to fill that order. That order is then sent back to the Great Basin Coordination Center and they send it to the next uh, closest, so on and so forth. If they cannot fill that order anywhere within the Great Basin, they will place that order up to Nick. Nick will then place that order to the next closest geographic area. And for this example in Boise, they'd place it probably to the we'd place it probably to the Northwest Coordination Center, where they would place it to Vail Dispatch there in, in southeastern Oregon, and they would try to fill it. Um, that process continues until it's either filled within the Northwest. If they do not fill it and they're unable to fill, they will place it back to Nick, and Nick will continue to shop those orders uh, across the country. Uh, through the three-tier system until we either A, get a fill, or B, the resources UTF nationally. Um, Nick individually, I think last year, 64, 65,000 individual requests. So we're talking about overhead, aircraft, equipment and supplies, um, crews. Um, so just there's a lot of different resources that were, uh, a, lot, a lot of different resource orders that we're processing through the NIC. Um, some other stuff, though, here at NIC outside of uh, the three-tier system is uh, the operations itself. So we have three real parts to the NIC at this point. Uh, our airspace coordination unit, uh, they work closely with the FAA, uh, includes the issuance of temporary flight restrictions and that management. Uh, they also work closely with the military, uh, working on training route deconfliction. That's really primarily at that geographic and local level. And then uh, UAS incursions, we've been seeing those quite a bit over the last few years. 
Uh, the other sector, or what we call drones, sometimes. Exactly. Um, our predictive services section—that's really the foundation of our entire operation at NIC. Uh, it's made up of meteorologists, fire analysts, and then our intel section. This group works closely with their counterparts uh, in the ten geographic areas, so they have a predictive services unit there. Um, but specifically with the meteorologists, they're giving us updated weather forecasts and working with the fire analysts to kind of give uh, the resource allocation decision makers, our, our emergency operations coordinators on the floor or at a larger scale, the NMAC, on uh, where we should really pre-position resources uh, prior to a, uh, let's, let's, a fire event or a, or, or a weather event where we're going to see potentially significant fire activity so, for example, we'll pull resources out of a geographic area that may not be having very much significant fire activity or is actually on the downhill slide. So an example I like to use is during the monsoons, uh, you know, the first part, first week, second week of July after they kick in and they become really established, we may have to move resources from New Mexico and Arizona where we're seeing fire activity now um, up into areas of the west uh, primarily the Pacific Northwest or the Northern Great Basin, and uh, we utilize the meteorologists and fire analysts to help us determine where the best place for those resources are going to go. Uh, our intel section there at NIC, uh, they do a quite a bit for us. They they primarily create the incident management situation report. That's a seven-day-a-week issuance when we're in western fire season uh, or at preparedness level two or three, just depending on activity. But they also uh, determine our resource shortages and some of our pinch points. So they uh, give us decision support tools uh, to make good resource allocation decisions really when we get very busy at national preparedness level three, four, and five. Um, UTFs are mm-hmm. unable to fill orders. Um, what happens if we do like run out of resource or you have multiple UTFs um, and what's the process there? Because I know there's, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about where we're low on um, firefighters sure. um, federally and have a hard time hiring, like many people are having a hard time hiring and many other jobs too. But um, does that affect, would that affect that? Or is it more just um, resources are working in other areas or, or multiple things? Yeah, I think it's, it's multiple things, Carrie. Um, we'll just take, for example, right now, what we have going on. So the Southwest uh, geographic area has been very busy the last few weeks, uh, probably a good two to three weeks ahead of schedule from where they normally are. Um, we are already seeing UTFs unable to fill for a variety of overhead uh, aircraft engines, a lot of fire engines. And a lot of that has to do with our seasonal workforce that is coming into play right now. They're just working on getting trained up. We're just hiring folks in. Uh, that's historically what we have done. So as we have more and more resources come available, uh, we'll probably see those UTF numbers start to decline a little bit. But then once again, as we start getting busy at some of those other geographic areas across the country, specifically Southern California, Northern California, the Great Basin, uh, a Rocky Mountain area where we're starting to see some activity there, um, we're going to see UTF numbers go back up again because we do have a finite number of resources. And that's why the dispatch coordination system even exists in the first place. Uh, for example, we have, I don't, I don't know, about 120 uh, hotshot crews available nationally when we're at our peak. Uh, you know, if we had 500 or 600 of those hotshot crews, we wouldn't need a coordination system. Folks, the agencies would just be able to work together and, and move resources around. But we do have a finite number of resources um, and yeah, it just that, that those UTF numbers ebb and flow throughout the fire season. And it not only has to do with fire activity, it has to do with where we are with the availability of our uh, our seasonal workforce. Sure. And then it isn't like 
we're super busy all year round either. It's um, those peak times that you said when, you know, we never have enough resources. And in those instances, um, do we, what what do we do? Do we look at other places, right? Other like international and military? Yeah. Um, So we will make resource allocation decisions there at NIC. We have a delegation of authority through the NMAC um, to make resource allocation decisions specifically uh, some of the, most of the stuff, you know, is logistical and it can take some time, you know, an individual overhead coming from Minnesota to Southern California or, um, you know, just a variety of things, engines coming from Florida to the Rocky mountain area. But uh, we do make some tactical decisions and those have to do with our air tankers and lead planes. Um, So that's on a day-to-day basis. Uh, and we also have a finite availability of those resources as well. But um, once we move up into, you know, preparedness level four or five, and we start to really run out of resources, when we have 20,000, 25,000 firefighters committed nationally, we do, we look to our international partners. Uh, we've had a, a very long relationship with Canada, with the Canadian Interagency Fire Center. Uh, their, uh, their center manager was just here a few weeks ago uh, working with myself and my counterparts on, on their operating plan for this year. We routinely exchange resources between Canada and the United States. Uh, most of those are for uh, actual firefighters. So uh, folks that are working on engines, hand crews. We had a number of crews come out of Quebec last year. Um, in previous years before, British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec, but uh, also Alberta. Um, but we'll also work uh, with our international partners in Australia and New Zealand. Um, those usually are our middle managers when we get to a point of the fire season where we are really having a difficult time uh, with division supervisors, task force leaders, those folks that are supervising individuals on um, divisions of fire or sections within a division. Those are where we primarily go to for those resources. And then uh, a couple of years ago, we uh, had our first uh, deployment of Mexico fire crews here to the United States. They were in Southern California. Um, they did an excellent job for us. I think we had five crews, 100 firefighters, um, and uh, the agency administrators, the, the incident commanders, the folks that were uh, really running those incidents down there in Southern California were very impressed with their work. And I know that we're going to continue a long, uh, as the beginning of a longstanding relationship with Mexico uh, in bringing firefighters here. So. Then also, Carrie, we have um, our military assets. So we've had a very close relationship with the Department of Defense for uh, a number of decades now. Uh, we mobilize active duty firefighters on a, on a pretty routine basis at this point, usually a half a battalion of firefighters. Um, we also uh, have a close relationship with the Air Force uh, with their MAFs units, so their C-130 air tankers. We will bring those in as we start to do UTFs for our air tanker fleet. Um, and they, last year, I, I, I think the number was close to 2 million gallons of retardant dropped by our um, our military partners uh, from the Air Force with MAFs as they were operating primarily out of McClellan, California. Um, they also provide some other uh, assets to us as well, distributed real-time information. So uh, they do have some aircraft capability they use for detection and mapping, uh, as well as some of our infrared flights are covered by uh, the Department of Defense as well. And infrared flights, what does that provide? Yeah, our, our IR uh, capability. So uh, overnight hours, we do have uh, agency aircraft as well as some private vendors and some military assets uh, that uh, that image our fires at nighttime looking for heat detection. Uh, we actually flight follow those aircraft out of uh, the National Interagency Coordination Center uh, during uh, the peak fire season, but they map the 
actual incidents. Uh, they give the data to an infrared interpreter there at that incident, and then they create their maps so that uh, they, uh, uh, incident commanders and their operations folks can put together a plan uh, for the previous uh, operational shift and so that they have good situational awareness of where fires moved into what drainages and those types of things. So making tactical decisions in the next day or next shift. Correct. Lots of moving parts. Lots of moving parts. And you, uh, Nick also has, so people get confused sometimes thinking that we have a, a, a lot of resources that we dispatch right. or, or that the, the coordination center dis- dispatches, but it's actually, like you said, going through the resource ordering system and, and really moving things mm-hmm. around. Um, but there are some resources that Nick has. Yeah. Yeah. So, that partnership with the local local level, like you were saying, m- the vast majority of resources are are hosted at the local level. So I think the Angeles National Forest, the Boise District BLM, Elko District BLM, uh, Yosemite National Park, they're the ones that really have um, the most of the resources. At Nick, we are the single focal point for um, the ordering of all call when needed type one and type two helicopters. Uh, we're also the single focal point for the ordering of national caters and showers. Um, but we are responsible for the mobilization of all national resources. So national resources are resources that are very limited in supply. Let's think smoke jumpers. Uh, let's think uh, interagency hotshot crews, air tankers, lead planes. And we will strategically move those resources across the country based upon the priorities set um, at, the, at the lower preparedness levels, one and two, by our staff there at NIC. And as we move up into preparedness levels three, four, five, by the National Multi-Agency Coordinating Group. Um, one other asset that we do have at our disposal that we use frequently frequently is we do have a 90-day contract uh, for a large transportation aircraft. So uh, usually it's a 737, um, and we use that to move around uh, fire crews, usually five, five uh, crews totaling about 100 passengers uh, that we can move back and forth uh, from from long distances. Uh, for example, a number of, just a few years ago, uh, Alaska had a very large fire season, uh, very active, and uh, for I would say probably two or three months, uh, probably more like two months. Uh, every other day or every third day, we were flying crews back and forth up to Alaska using that jet. And it's really a cost-effective tool for the taxpayer as well um, because we do get a premium price than uh, having to commercial those folks on uh, on some of the commercial airliners. Yeah, that makes sense. And same with um, Alaska. Like they're supposedly in their fire season now, I, I see they've picked up a little bit um, around this time of year. They're They're usually going and then... By July-ish, mm-hmm. they start slowing down so they can send resources yeah. down here. And, and it is quite a distance to the lower 48, so they will probably utilize something like that yeah, to, and, to transport them. Interesting you were talking about Alaska. This is just here in the last uh, week or so. They are starting to pick up with their fire activity already. In early May, yesterday, I know that the, uh, the BLM smoke jumpers up there jumped a fire out in the Aleutian Islands um, next to a national preserve uh, where there's a number of walruses. So wow. uh, working with Alaska Fish and Game. So that was pretty cool. Wow. Get those walruses to work for <laughs> us. <laughs> you can out some fires. No, I'm just kidding. Um, um, yeah, and that brings up an interesting point I heard today, too, that even New Hampshire had a fire. 
Yeah. That's kind of unusual, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the Northeast does have fires on occasion. Uh, just, a, I don't know, probably two or three years ago, Pennsylvania did have a, a fairly large outbreak of fires right. um, where they had some incident management teams, New Hampshire itself, to have a large fire. Yeah, it's pretty rare, but it, it's not out of the ordinary. Uh, some other areas in the Northeast, like New Jersey, uh, they do have large wildland fires, uh, usually each year. Right. Yeah. So fire can strike anywhere. Yep. And I know Hawaii even, you know, people think, don't think Hawaii, but they actually had kind of a season a couple of years ago too. Yeah, I think last year was their largest fire uh, on record yeah. uh, there in Hawaii. So, yeah, they Hawaii does get specifically on the leeward side of the islands. They they do, do see fire activity, significant fire activity every year. Yeah, so we can't get away from it. <laughs> um, I want to go back to you mentioned the um, ordering system mm-hmm. or IROC. So how how does that work as far as are all wildland, anybody that has a wildland fire qualification, are they in that system? Yes. So, so it's uh, not just federal. Correct. No, it's 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 everyone uh, that uh, usually gets dispatched through the national coordination system. So the five federal land management agencies, of course, but the states are a big player, right? Um, and some states are, are very, they have very large fire organizations, all those resources are in IROC as well. Um, and then a number of local and city and county and state or city folks, um, their resources, those are also in IROC. They're, they're usually available depending, of course, uh, whatever their situation is there to uh, mobilize nationally as well. And there's agreements in place uh, locally and, and within states uh, to mobilize those resources. So um, we do have a lot of resources in California um, with the counties, with the cities, uh, as well as Florida, Colorado, Oregon. So um, it's, just, it's just not a federal land management agency application. Right. So we would be able to see who is available and who can go out. And so even if it looks like we're low, we actually might have more resources um, and through our other partners. Right. I want to ask you about um, all hazard incidents. Yeah. Because I know Ken, we know when we finished the podcast last time, um, he he failed. He's like, oh, I forgot to mention, you know, this is a big part of what we do now, yeah. too. We're not just a, a wildland fire management, you know, coordination center anymore. We're we're moving more into all, the all incidents man- management as well. So can you explain that? A little sure, bit? absolutely. So uh, the Federal Land Management Agency specifically Um, have been working closely with FEMA for 20 or 30 years um, through the Emergency Support Function 4. And we do respond to all-risk incidents. So people are like, what's an all-risk incident? Um, It's not just natural disasters. So we we do uh, quite frequently uh, mobilize lots of resources, lots of incident management teams, logistical support for hurricanes. Uh, So uh, you know, Hurricane Katrina, that was something that was very significant, but um, that's a, a much larger scale where we uh, mobilized, I believe, dozens of incident management teams and hundreds, if not thousands, of other individual firefighters and crews to support that. But some of the other uh, all-risk incidents that we have gone to in, you know, the last 20, 25 years uh, was during 9-11. So the logistics operations for um, recovery for the Pentagon, as well as the World Trade Center, uh, that, that was ran by our incident management teams. Uh, the Tuscaloosa, Alabama tornado a number of years ago, I think probably like 2012, uh, we support incident management teams and personnel with the recovery efforts for those types of things. Uh, recently, uh, COVID-19. So 
Uh, as, as folks remember, we had, there were a number of vaccination sites, hundreds of vaccination sites across the United States uh, that were being supported by FEMA. And FEMA did play a significant part, part of that. But uh, a lot of the folks that were doing the actual vaccinations, the ones that were setting up the staging areas, those types of individuals, uh, we processed thousands of orders for our resources, for our federal land management re- agency resources, as well as state and uh, city through this national coordination system, through the emergency support function uh, supporting FEMA. Yeah, and, and FEMA is the federal emergency management agency. agency. Yes. yes. Working for Homeland Security. Exactly. And also a part of U.S. Fire Administration. It is, <laughs> yeah. which, of course, U.S. Fire Administration, we do have a representative on the National Multi-Agency Coordinating Group, Haitor Bitaburu, uh, who represents FEMA and the Fire Administration. So, Sean, we, let's go back. You, you mentioned preparedness levels, and Ken kind of talked about it in his last podcast as well. So what are they, and how are they established? Sure. Uh, so national preparedness levels, they're established by the National Multi-Agency Coordinating Group uh, throughout the calendar year. Uh, preparedness levels, or what we call PL levels, they're you're usually dictated by burning conditions, fire and fuel, non-fire activity, kind of like the ESF4 support that we were just talking about, and resource availability. So resource availability is really uh, the primary driver for that. Um, situations described within preparedness levels, uh, consider wildland fires and pre- prescribed fires as well as that all risk. Um, it's on a one to five scale. And um, really, the preparedness levels are established to identify the level of wildland fire and non-fire activity, uh, severity, and resource commitment nationally. Uh, we also use them to identify actions to be taken by uh, NIC as well as NMAC and NIFSI. Uh, the geographic areas, so those 10 geographic areas that I talked about earlier, they also set their own preparedness levels, one being the lowest and five being the highest. And even the local, um, at that local level, they set preparedness levels. Uh, between one and five, and it's really to guide, direct, uh, guide and direct geographic area fire managers on activities uh, that are essential to national preparedness. So as we move up in preparedness level nationally, there are some circumstances or some results there at that local level uh, that are that are uh, dictated by the preparedness level. So when we're at a national preparedness level uh, four or five, we see obviously see a very deep, very large decrease in our prescribed fire activity so that we can make resources available to actually go out and do fire suppression instead of um, suppression at that local level. Um, for example, when we're at PL1, that's that's usually when there's not very much fire activity going on at all or, or just very seasonally during periods of time where we, we're just not seeing very much fire activity. So that's the, typically we're at a preparedness level one during the winter time uh, outside of maybe a large Santa Ana event or, or a very strong bimodal fire season in southern area where they have a strong uh, or a very active fall fire season. Uh, preparedness level two is when we start to see an increase in a competition of resources between multiple geographic areas, not on a, on a very large scale, but, um, you know, between two or three geographic areas. And then once we start moving into the core western fire season, uh, we'll get into preparedness level three, where that's where we start to uh, run out of hand crews, or we have very few hand crews left to be able uh, to make those allocation decisions on. And then at preparedness level four and five, uh, those typically happen during July and August, and uh, what can really exacerbate that situation is that, you know, that August into September time frame, that's peak hurricane season. So if we need to be able to support FEMA um, through ESF4, um, that can really be an indicator or really a driver to keep us at preparedness level five or four or five for a much, much longer level. So preparedness level doesn't necessarily, I mean, it is based on fire activity, but it also depends on other 
um, I guess, other Fact. events. Yeah, <laughs> other factors and, and really resource availability. Okay. So if we are seeing abnormal fire conditions uh, in parts of the country where we normally wouldn't uh, take Southwest as, a, as an example from this year or Southern Florida, that's happened before, I believe in 1998 in February and March, um, for extended period of, periods of time and not really having that resource availability in other parts of the country because of uh, the time of the year, we could elevate our preparedness levels uh, just on that. Okay, so just based on resource yeah. availability. Okay, that makes sense. So as far as preparedness levels and the public, mm-hmm. I mean, we'll, we'll announce those on social media just, and it's more of a, um, to let operations know that, you know, there is this need for resources, but... Um, can it be a trigger for the public? Well, I think I think it's an awareness tool for the public. Um, if they are in tune with what the fire situation is there locally or even within their state or within their general region, um, I, I think it could be utilized as a tool for the public just to let them know that we are at a higher preparedness level, um, to be more uh, fire aware, to, uh, to take into consideration, you know, some of their activities right outside um, when, when fires could start. But really that fire preparedness level that really that set, that's more for an operational, um, for an operational tempo. That makes sense. And we're also seeing kind of correlating with the fire preparedness levels. We see things um, that areas are taking action on as far as setting maybe fire restrictions and Correct. things like that. Cause we do, once we get into those higher levels, we want to really limit the amount of human-caused fires that just adds more stress to our system yeah. when we have these large fires burning. For example, right now in the Southwest, our preparedness level four, excuse me, preparedness level four, I think they have very strict fire restrictions right now um, going on throughout specifically in New Mexico. Yeah, and that's just a good reminder for people to, when you are getting ready to travel, think about where you're going, what time of year, yep. and look at conditions and what preparedness levels, but also what kind of restrictions and, and there could be even like smoke from fires people need to be aware of as well. Yeah. So with all this you see going on right now, mm-hmm. <laughs> what is fire year looking like so far? I mean, is this kind of an average, like, like a being at preparedness level too? Like we went in April, that was kind of early, wasn't it? That was pretty early. Uh, yeah. I think uh, since we've kept records there at Nick, I believe 1990, I think it's only the fourth time where we've gone have been at a preparedness level two in April. Um, yeah, we, we, we're ahead of schedule. So I'm sure most of our uh, listeners are aware the West is in a pretty severe drought. It's widespread. Um, it's not just in one general area, and it's been ongoing for a number of years now. So uh, we've seen that indicative of the fire activity in New Mexico and Arizona in the last month and a half, but also the southern plains in Texas. Um, they just can't catch a break. We're mobilizing an incident management team to a fire there in central Texas uh, outside of Wichita Falls uh, as of last night. But um, we're slowly seeing the progression of you know, Western fire season happen earlier this year than we have in previous years. It will not be long before we start seeing significant fire activity in the Great Basin, specifically in southern Utah, as well as southern Nevada, and then California. California had uh, Northern California specifically had their very their earliest red flag warning um, ever for the Sacramento Valley this year, um, and today they do have north winds as well. So we will slowly start seeing that progression over the next few weeks of significant fire activity occurring in a number of the western uh, states. Yeah, and that's another good point. The red flag warnings um, for people 
to take note, there's potential for significant fire activity. Correct. Significant wildland fire activity, rapid fire spread, those types of things. Right. And we see that a lot with maybe the heat and the winds conditions generally, and it could be even with lightning. Yeah. So how is this kind of an indicator of what we're going to see for the rest of the year then? I think it is. Um, I mean, I've I've been doing this for a while and, and, you know, anything can happen. You know, the, the really key thing for wildland fire season and how widespread it's going to be is May and June precip inputs. So as you know, we've been very trophy, which means we've had a lot, lot, quite a few storms in, uh, you know, the Pacific Northwest and the Northern Great Basin, Northern Rockies area over the last several weeks. If that continues as we transition towards the monsoon season, we may actually catch a break in some areas, but also uh, this trophy weather, these uh, spring, these spring rains, they're creating a, they're creating a grass crop um, specifically in, in the Great Basin and uh, there is a potential, of course, it's always going to get hot in the summer and we're always going to have time long-term time periods where there's not going to be any precip and the grass is going to dry out so we do have uh, an opportunity for uh, a pretty significant western wildland fire season again unfortunately yeah that is unfortunate it is yeah but this is kind of becoming the norm just keep thinking we have well 2019 wasn't too bad 2019 was great. (laughs) (laughs) You actually got your break then. Yeah, I can remember 2009 and 2019. Those were good years. So every 10 years you get a break. (laughs) (laughs) So in closing, is there anything you would like to mention we maybe haven't discussed or you want to talk about? No, I, I, you know, just the interagency partnerships. um, And I think that goes uh, missed uh, quite a bit, you know, uh, over the last 30, 40 years, uh, specifically uh, with the federal land management agencies, as well as the states, which are a huge um, partner to the federal land management agencies, just our interagency cooperation, um, not only in the dispatch, but in, in fire operations that we've seen throughout the West. Um, it is pretty significant. We do a very good job of mobilizing resources, utilizing that closest forces concept. It's it's supported, it's embraced by um by all levels of, um, of, of land management. And uh, that's something that I think that, that really needs to be captured that uh, that wildland fire is very successful at. Thank you, Sean, for joining me today for the sixth episode of Wildfire Matters and taking the time to explain what the National Interagency Coordination Center does and the support it provides not only to wildland fire management, but all hazard incidents as well. And we surely appreciate all you do all the time and effort you put into your job and glad you still love your job <laughs> and the people that work for you too, the staff that um, is managed or helping manage all these uh, resource orders. And yes, it gets busy and not only just here, but the dispatch centers across the country. We really appreciate all the work they're doing to help support our, our firefighters out there and our resources. Um, and thank you all for listening. If you have any questions, questions, comments, or even suggestions on different topics for our podcasts, please email them to us. Um, You can find our email address on nifc.gov website. That's nifc.gov under contact us. And remember to please follow us at BLM Fire on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please join us next time. I think Jennifer will be back when we spark a conversation with one of the National Interagency Coordination Center Predictive Services meteorologists. We will get an in-depth look at how the National Significant Wildland Fire Potential Outlook 
is produced and the significance of weather forecasting for wildland fire management planning. Until Until then, then, stay stay safe and and be wildfire wildfire aware. aware.